you, you brought me to the, uh, or us to the third record, License to Dream. And um, I just want to quickly mention a few uh, highlights of that one so viewers know. Mm. Um, that one had uh, Declare Ting, uh, <laughs> which was a great funky jam. Um, cool synth work in that one, uh, fun laser, laser blast effects. Um, <laughs> Sippin' and Kissin' uh, was a, a mellow and real different kind of track with a female lead vocal. Mm -hmm. Um, License to Dream, the um, uh, title track, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, Get Tough, which you had mentioned uh, earlier. Um, right. Eric. A real nice dance R&B with sort of a funk flair to it. Mm -hmm. uh, Say You Love Me was a, a real nice, a real, to me, it was sort of Clear's first true love ballad. Um, I'll go with that. Yeah, I, I did the uh, the strings on that uh, using a uh, an ARP Omni Mark One synthesizer. And that was that was fun to do. Uh, um, that felt like a very warm song, very very loving song. Mm -hmm. uh, when Paul wrote that, and I just I just I fell in love with it. And then the, honestly, Scott, that particular line came to me within minutes. It just it just flowed. It just I I, I got something out of Paul's heart, put it into mine, and we came up, you know, musically with what we ended up with. And that's just one of the things on the album that's fun, you know, some some uh, insight as to what happened behind the scenes with it. Um, absolutely, and, and it closed with uh, "Where Would I Be Without Your Love," which was another real nice danceable R&B track with a, a funk flair to it. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, this was a, just another tremendously successful album, just right back to back with winners. Uh, I would say probably it's equal. I think. Yeah. I think that one went. Uh, Rick, was that did that one go platinum? Or was it, it, win or was it winners going... went platinum? Well, well, well. As a as a as a singer, as a singer, went gold. You know, just okay. about just about gold. And uh, but what what we were really trying to do, I don't know. At that point, we were, you know, we were selling really great. And uh, but um, you know, I just I just felt as though, if if at any time, I mean, I mean, let's just say, I know all the artists have certain little things about the record company but like uh basically we were you know you know you know at that point i thought i thought clear's promotion needed to step up a little bit more because we mm. were selling but I, I just didn't feel as though we were getting to everybody that we should have gotten to mm -hmm. and uh because uh a lot of a lot of the stuff well you know you know i know everybody thinks so but i thought a lot of the stuff should have did a little better than it did you know? mm. just my opinion right right Rick, how, how would you uh, arrive at your guitar parts for for tracks, say on an album like License to Dream? And you know, did you ever feel like you wanted to throw a little solo in here or there? And how did you sort of negotiate or navigate your way through what your guitar would be in these tracks? You know, it was more about having like a a, a, a guitar part, but I wanted to have some funk in the guitar part. You know. So what I would do is I would just kind of feel it out, and uh, and as you know, I would go through certain things, and uh, certain guys would be like, "Hey man, well yeah man, yeah man, that's cool, play that." So like I would add things together, you you know I I don't know you know, I I didn't think too hard about it. It was just more of um, having a guitar part, something because see you always wanted to be able to stop the whole song, and let's just say maybe the guitar is playing. And still be able to stop, keep dancing. 
you know I, yeah. I I like to think that any any instrument any instrument like we could solo the instrument and you would still have the feeling of the whole song in in well that was playing so, so so it's like when we when we all put it together you know it it really fit but it was it was just something that you know you know I think I think I was mostly playing guitar to myself sometimes. I don't know, you know. <laughs> Serenading yourself. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of, kind of like that, you know, because I would kind of think, what, what would I want to hear? And you went ahead and played it. I heard every guitar solo that there was. <laughs> it, it wasn't about how long you could solo and all through that. It was about playing something which really, because you know, it was all dance. So you wanted to do something that that you could dance to, you know, and uh, hopefully I, you know, like I hope that you could dance to all my guitar parts. You know? <laughs> and uh, Eric, you mentioned about the live shows. So at this point, when Clear is really kind of peaking in its in its arc of popularity, um, when you guys would perform live, what were the shows basically like? You know, did you play a forty-five minute set with other groups? Did, did you tend to uh, play to replicate the records or did you stretch out? What was it like? It was basically to try and uh, replicate what was on the, I was gonna say tape, uh, record <laughs> at the time. Um, there actually was, it was actually pretty structured what we did on stage, uh, pretty much mimicking what was on the record. Um, the little things that we had, like when I, I did my little, I grabbed my horn, I strut up front to the uh, place, you know, they'd be grooving and whatnot. And then, so I had that time, that extra time over what the album had so I can get in place in the front stage and play a soprano saxophone solo and then get back. But um, there's a few spots, I believe, uh, Rick probably backed me up on this, where uh, going from one tune to another, we'd get into this little funky groove thing going as an interlude from the ending of one song into the next song. So there was that little bit of stretching out and you can do you know, a few things uh, there, but it was pretty much, it was pretty, pretty rigid where we needed to be. Uh, it was about, we had uh, between 25, 30 minute sets up to I think about as much as 45 or 50 minute sets, um, depending on the venue, how many bands were playing that evening, uh, time constraints. Mm -hmm. But um, basically, um, not a lot, but there was, I mean, there was some times where I'd go up in front with the girls and I have a shaker type of thing and I'm shaking this thing and dancing with the girls. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of like, it just happened. So the band followed whatever I did up on the front of the stage. And you know, there's this crazy guy up the front dancing with the girls. Okay, let it go, you know, and they keep playing. And I was like- It was, all, it was always like a party. It it's was like, it, like party. exactly. It was like a party you know, you know, when you we know, got up you know, there. And we figured, we figured as though, if the party isn't going on on stage, it ain't then happening. it's not happening, you right. know? So we'd, so we'd I, be partying. I, I always wanted people to feel as though, wow, boy, they, well, wow, man, they, you, know, you know, they're on stage, they're having fun, they're playing. Because when people saw that, that kind of went out into the audience. And the it audience sure did. It, back and, it yeah, sure you know, did. Fed and off each other. It just energized the people. And Lord, at the, the end, by the time we were done, you know, the roar was incredible. <laughs> it's yeah. like okay bye we're getting next people are up you know mm -hmm. so yeah the, playing live was really fun with clear uh the, the all the different venues uh, we played old old miss you know uh down south there and we, 
we just played all over and the, the coliseums and the colleges were just great to play and each one had a certain thing about them there's a there was an air there that you picked up on and that came out in the music when we played in any particular venue you'd sense the people uh, and some of these places had history in them uh, like the cow palace over in san francisco and uh, or old miss and um you, that would come into you. You're looking around this place while you're playing and performing, and you just, I'm giving this my all, 110 percent now because this is this is the sh this is the poo. I won't say the other words. Yeah, uh -huh. that's all right. <laughs> so that that was there was the exciting part of, and and you can see, every person on that stage, had the same mentality. We're playing here as a group. We're playing here for you, the people. How, how many how many people on stage for Claire at that point? Nine. 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 Yeah, band. nine. We were talking uh, some before uh, we went on the air, and um, uh, Eric, you showed me the uh, uh, ID with the Rick James tour in 1980, and you guys uh, played with Prince early on. What what were those two experiences like? I think viewers would really be curious to know uh, what, what those experiences were like. So what do you have to say <laughs> about it? Oh, wait, he's, uh, Eric's showing it. There it is. Yeah. Huh. Wait, who's that guy in the picture? Oh, yeah. oh, the heck with you! I, <laughs> my, my hair was darker then. Okay, I still have yeah. the beret though. Yeah. <laughs> so, you guys have any uh, recollections of those experiences? What uh, what when uh, when when Prince got on the um the show? Well, when we when we first came in, because um. Uh, Rick James was starting like his his uh, tour, and um, let me see, and us and Rick James we had the same um, accountant firm, which was Bert Fidel, and that's how, like we, you know, we got to know like when Rick James was uh, coming on tour, and Rick James basically re requested us because he he had he had heard Keep Your Body Working, he loved it, and uh, you know he he wanted us on on tour. So then we found out it was going to be us, Prince, and Rick James. At that point, we didn't we didn't know very much about Prince. It was like, okay, great. You know, Prince, that's that guy who does that song, I wanna be your lover or something like that. You know, you know, so we were cool. Right. But um it's funny, all but we all you know, all of us spent the night on the side of the stage watching each other's show. Right. You yeah. know that was I fun. Mean, we would that was fun. Yeah, yeah, we would look over and there's there's Rick James on one side of the stage, there's Prince on the other side of the stage. Maybe maybe with uh, you know, you know, standing there with Eddie Murphy or somebody and everybody was always there. And it was always kind of like I think we all supported each other's shows and uh because I mean half the time we were on the side of the stage when when Rick James was 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 on stage and all. So it was it was one of the the nice times, like when you're touring and you're on a show, there were there were really no egos. We we really we really enjoy all all of them. You know, I mean, I mean, because at first I didn't know very much about Prince at all. You know, and and I must admit, like you know, you know, you know, basically when they played, we listened to them, and we turned around. And a lot of times when we played, we we turned around and they were with us. So, uh, you know, you know, I just think it was it was it was one of those really really good tours when we. You know, you know, you know, you know. Everybody got along on stage and 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 behind the stage too. Right. right. Everybody was, uh, you know, rah rah for everybody else. Okay, we're gonna watch you. They're gonna watch us. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, it was quite a nice yeah. com camaraderie behind the stage working with these people, Prince and Rick James and, uh, you know, Sister Sledge. They were wonderful. You know, it's just, uh, yeah, yeah, it was, uh, it was a, a, a lot of nice things that we toured with, you know. Yeah, really. Did, 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 did you have any sense or were you surprised with how uh, big Prince ultimately became? Uh, interestingly uh, enough, go, go ahead, Rick. Well, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to tell you, I I heard it because, see, one one thing Prince and them really, really, I mean, I was I, I, I was really affected by the fact that was that we, we really tried a lot of times to keep things simple because that could funk work best sometimes when it's simple. And uh, one thing I realized about Prince and them when I heard them, I said they had taken simplicity to another level. Because, I mean, you know, they had keyboard players doing two and three finger chords. Okay. I mean, you, you, you know, they didn't, they didn't go through a whole bunch of stuff. But it, it, was, it was effective, you know. And it was one of the first times that I kind of heard that Minneapolis sound. So, yeah. Yeah, Prince was something new, I thought. I didn't, I didn't know it would go as big. You know, you know I, was I was impressed by the band, frankly. Now, over the but years, that, that Prince changed. But you know the some of that very first stuff that Prince did was the stuff which made Prince as big as he is. Yeah, was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, there's a lot of uh, talk about the sort of uh, a rift or feud that developed between Rick James and Prince on that tour. It sounds like you guys didn't see any of that. It. it I don't know. I, I I didn't see any real. It was. I, I think Rick James at that point would like to act like it was something or maybe play like it, but it was it it was nothing. Every it it was just a very very nice. Like I said, I think I everybody mean, I think everybody was doing their own thing, and we mm -hmm. with respect to the other bands, you know, you know Prince to you know to us and to Rick James, mm -hmm. and uh, Rick to us and to Prince, and mm -hmm. uh, you know and clear to. Prince and to Rick James, we all respected each other, and uh, like like Rick says, we'd we'd be out there on stage, um, seeing what they were doing. And, you know, we we'd open up, and then uh, you know you'd have uh, Prince and Rick James or what have you. And uh, so yeah, to have uh, there was that camaraderie there, but there was also that's your stuff, this is my stuff, and this is their stuff. You know, so was, there there were definitely the three different band things happening, uh, but I think everybody was enjoying that fact there were three different bands and everybody did their own thing to the max mm -hmm. that was that and, was the, that was the magic of it that was know, the fun you know and Henry you know and remember long before the tabloids and all start calling stuff beef <laughs> and uh, a lot of that was really only happening in the tabloids in real life behind stage we all got along and uh you know and yeah. and prison James was cool you know you know, Prince yeah, wasn't one of those ones. The tabloids, Scott. You know, but he tabloids. Was, <laughs> the tabloids <laughs> are just that. They're tabloids. Mm -hmm. They sell they sell newspapers. That's all. Yeah. Lot, yeah. Sorry, yeah, that's, sorry, folks. But that's a lot where of that's most all bogus. of that was. You know, you know, you know. We, you know, we, really uh, we had a fun we had a fun time touring with them and a lot of the groups mm -hmm. that we played with. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's funny, you know, because um, I, I mentioned to you guys for one on air that I had Stone City Band guys on this show, and I asked them about that tour. And they kind of said the same thing. They didn't really, there really wasn't that much of a feud or anything like that. So. No, no, no feuds. No, no, yeah. there was no issues. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Who, who are some of the other uh, 
interesting acts that you went on tour with or shared stages with? Narada Michael Walden. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, who else, Rick? Let me see. Um, okay. Uh, ba, 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 ba. Well, uh, well, we did. Uh, let me see. When was that? Now, I wish I had that because I have sweat. I have all my passes. You know, they give us a sticker passes when you're in these different places, and it showed you what? Rick James tour, Prince tour, uh, Spinners. And I had that. I can just go through it and tell you, okay, it's this guy, this guy, this, you know. Well, I'll just I'll just throw out some some big names of the day, and you tell me, yeah, 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 like Lakeside or Confunction or Cameo or. I would. Uh, I think we think we did stuff cameo. stuff with Cameo, Confunction. Yeah, Cameo. Um, oh God. I don't know, but you know, like a lot of the groups, I'm gonna tell you, we would come on. We were friendly. Oh, but cool it in the was gang. More like we we played, really... Remember, Rick? We played. Oh, yeah, with cool, cool in the cool gang. gang. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. But a lot. I was of times, talking. I was like talking said, to the drummer, and I was talking to the drummer there, and he says, "Yeah, you guys, mm -hmm. you guys got it. You go, you go." I forget the fellow's name, but George uh, Brown. Uh, yes. Yep. Okay. Mm -hmm. So and uh, yeah, they, they uh, again, they also had a very. Um, clear-esque, if you will, um, attitude to the music, what they were playing as a group out front and the music, their music in general. A uh, very uplifting band, Cool in the Gang. I love well, those guys. Good. We'll good get music. to it in, in a few minutes, but you guys ended up using their producer too later on. So, <laughs> yeah. It's funny how that works out. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it, it, was, it was just strange. It was funny how that worked out, works out. There were two producers, which I, for some reason, really wanted to, to do because see I I had looked at um uh let me see what what Diodato because I could see I remember the cooling the gang before Diodato and mm -hmm. then I remember like they, correct they had kind of resurgence when they got Diodato and right. and, yeah. and let's just say what was what was that what the ladies night and uh the couple of hits that they had then mm -hmm. so like I was I was looking at a guy going you know you know and I noticed that they really didn't change their sound and so, like, and I was looking right, for yeah. producers who really worked with you and didn't change your sound. They they worked with what you had. Okay, mm -hmm. I liked him, and I liked uh, okay, black guy played keyboard, uh, jazz. Oh, oh, wait a minute, I'm gonna, and my head's gonna blow up in a minute. <laughs> George Duke. George Duke. Love that, you do man. That, man? <laughs> oh, I love yeah, that. George man. Duke. Okay. I, I'm I'm gonna say those were two of the producers that I that I kind of looked at, you know, you know, you know, and I thought and I thought Claire would would work good with that. The opportunity to meet Dio came up first, and we met him. We met him. We met him at Bert Padel's office, and he just kind of went in, you know, you know, you know. I mean, so he just kind of got into the band thing, and next thing we knew, we, you know, we were down at his studio making. Making records, it just it just happened. I mean, you know, we didn't we didn't really plan it or not. It, it just happened that way, and uh, and it worked out. Yeah, because yeah, the next record that I had was Taste of Music, in '82, but he wasn't with you guys yet on that one, right? No, no, no. Yeah, that was my last album with him. Yeah, mm -hmm. that album. Um, I just again some highlights. Uh, Taste of Music, the title track was a real call. I thought it was a callback to keep your body moving or keep your body uh, working. Mm -hmm. Did you guys feel like that too? That was sort of a... That's a good analogy. Out. I like that. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, real hot, danceable, funky R&B, club-friendly yeah. kind of track. Um, and then you have the sequel, The Ting Continues. <laughs> yes, The Ting Continues. <laughs> and you even, uh, for the first time, added some rap element with that one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that was, that was kind of like out, because we always had a joke play song. And, uh, and anyway, you know, with us just calling it the team continues. That was that that basically came from our producer Dennis King. He had yeah. he was from Ghana and he had an accent, and uh, he very seldom pronounced let's say T H E. He would say, yeah. hey, the hey, team. Man, that team over there, man. What are we gonna do? Yeah, that thing there. Yeah, man. You know, so we just got with it. I mean, we we started saying, "Ah, I like the thing." I like the thing, man. You know the thing. So we we never thought of a name for the song. So the thing continues. You know? Ah, that makes sense now. More sense. More sense. Um, the album also had "Swan," which was a nice old school soul ballad yeah. kind of track. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But. Um, why, why did this one end up being um, the one that you left on Eric? Uh, that gets into some of the, well, uh, as Rick knows, I was in the band uh, for a number of years, um, putting my heart and soul into it. And I was naive to business at that point. And uh, I always felt being, the band is, the, the nine people, they're recording they go on on tour there that that is the band and uh, uh woody hit me with a phone call and it turned out that uh uh he, he hit me with um uh basically he says to me he says let's get something straight uh you work for us and i said after this many years of putting my, well, my all into it and writing parts and helping the project and touring i felt i was much more than that and i says i don't work for you anymore that's when I hung up on him, and um, that's that's the gut of what happened at that point. Um, immediately, I didn't realize what would happen, but then afterwards, I realized that when you change that dynamic of a group, uh, somebody that did what I did in the group, uh, I understand. A few weeks later, Terry Dolphin left, and then the girls left, so the band basically fell apart. Which I'm sorry about that happening to them, but um, that's what happened. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got a, uh, I went to Jake Giles uh, about some of the royalties. Uh, the J uh, the Jake Giles uh, attorney he was uh, in, Man mm -hmm. in Manhattan there. Yeah. And we discussed it. I played him some tapes. He says, well, basically, you know, uh, there's not, uh, I could get some royalties out of it, but what are you going to pay me to get those royalties? Um, you know, considered a wash in the business. And I told him, I says, well, if that's the business, I want no part of it. I wasn't brought up like that. And I stopped playing. I didn't listen to music for two years. I didn't listen to anything. I did not listen to my classics. I didn't play. Uh, I was very heartbroken from that. Mm -hmm. And then I started getting back into it. And I heard uh, the, a lot of the derogatory, um, um, the rap stuff, which I'm quite frankly, I'm not a, a fan of. Because a lot of it, uh, at that point coming in, they were getting the shock jock stuff and they're saying a lot of nasty things. And I was, So to this day, I'm really not a fan of that music. It's, I think it's bad for the environment, if you will. Uh, but then I started getting back into music. I started playing. I did some other things. And, uh, 
Again, I probably went back into my soundscapes initially with my synthesizer things at the home. And uh, I started working with some local guys here, just playing cover material and whatnot, just got back into music a little bit until a couple of years. Was it Rick about two years, two and a half years now? We got back together yeah, and I said, yeah, let's, I'll, you know, okay. let's, let's go ahead and get clear back together. Yeah, remember now, first I talked to um, your buddy. Terry? Um, on this little, yeah, on this little job that I had. Wow. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I met, I, I met one of Eric's old school, school, school friends. And um, he happened to ask me one, one day, did I know Eric Robar? And I said, yeah. You know, and come to find out he, he went to school with Eric and all, and he knew. And I asked him straight up. I said, "Man, look, you know, you know." And I t and I told him exactly. I said, "Man, Eric did not leave the group right, man. It, it was not that was not a good thing, you know." And I let him know that, you know, like I I really wished that, you know, you know, we could get in contact with him. Of course, he pulls Eric's phone number right out of his pocket, <laughs> and, uh, and I'm like, I, you know, you know, and I knew then. I said, "See, this was destined to happen." It's water under the bridge I, now. We're, str we're stronger yeah, for this. Yeah. We're stronger for this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was, this was destined to happen because uh, this guy that I talked to, I had known this guy maybe a year or so before we had ever talked about Eric. And just one day, he just happened to say, hey, man, do you know Eric Robot? You know, you know, because I think he had looked online and he had saw uh, something about Clear and it all clicked with him. Oh, yep. this is his group. You know, you know, you know, you know, and it went on from there. So... You know, like I said, you know, all groups have a dark time. That that was that, that was, was the dark, dark time, time for Clear. Yeah. It well, happened. Now we're here. Well, I'm going to loop back to to you, Eric, but I do want to touch on those uh, other three records be, before Good doing man. that. All right, because, uh, it, it does finish the Clear story. That's right. Um, need to get get ready was the next record, and <clears throat> see how you think about this, uh, Rick. To me, overall. I think that was the most straight-ahead funk album that Clear did. Just which which one you saying now? Get get ready. Oh, get okay. ready was definitely more funk oriented and less uh, dance R and B than the other records. And to me, I heard like a Rick James and Prince influence in that album. Okay, um, yeah, yeah, a lot of stuff happened with around us, you know, you know, so it. It would come out, you know, and a lot of Rick James stuff to, you know, you know, you know, at first that we, that we hear it because, because to me, a Rick James was a composite of a whole lot of other people too. Mm -hmm. So it was just all the stuff that we had been listening to, you know, but yeah, you know, we, you know, I don't, I don't think we thought we would listen to the album afterwards and realize, oh, okay, this is, uh, you know, you, you know, we thought we, we thought this was straight funk and maybe a, a more a little less musical than than we had been before. Right. Mm -hmm. I was also curious why Get Ready, the title track, was not a single. That seemed like a missed opportunity. Uh, that's one of those that's one of those arguments with the record company that we lost. Okay. And and the thing of it is, as you you know, you know, as you get with a record company and, you know, you start getting your fourth, your fifth album, the record company, you know, gets new executives and they start thinking of new ways to micromanage certain things which didn't need micromanaging. 
And um, I think that's when we started not getting along with the record company because we just felt as though that, you know, there were things that we wanted to do and they would, you know, keep trying to let us know that they were the professionals. And I'm like, yeah, but we're looking at what the professionals are doing and, and putting out. And a lot of times, you know, Atlantic Records were, you know, I felt as though dropped the ball. You know, and when we started talking about them dropping the ball, they were offended. And we and we didn't understand why they were offended because the record sales showed that something happened. You know. <laughs> so like I said, you know, you you know, you know, you know, you start arguing. It's not good to argue with the record company because you know, you know, you know, regimes change in the record company and all of a sudden your name goes from first to down off the side on the on the other page, you know. You got to be political, or you could be out the door. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you know. So I think I think that's a lesson that we did not learn well because that was an argument, which which you know, you know, we lost too, and we yeah. also you know thought that we could get another contract, which was like, uh, uh-uh, uh, didn't happen that way, <laughs> you know. So. Mm. You know, it's that. strange. It all happened very slowly, but it when let's just say you know you know kind of like a house of cards when it started falling, it all fell. But no, no Dennis King on that one either. That was uh... well at this point. Okay, of course we, you know, you know us and Dennis King had kind of parted ways a little bit because it it just you know there were there were certain changes he wanted us to make that we didn't want to make, and we felt as though at that point that. You know, we kind of knew what we were doing too. You know, so I think a little bit of a little bit of pride and ego got in the way. You know, well, let me just say a lot of pride and ego got in the way on both sides. You know, and like I said, the house of cards, things started falling apart. And that that started falling apart. But during that time, like I said, that's when we got with Diodato. And that and that worked out well, we thought, because I mean, he he communicated with him, and uh, and frankly, things worked out, you know, you know, pretty good. Well, yeah, the next record with him was uh, Intimate Connection, and definitely to me had a more techno um, feel to it, and was more sort of radio friendly. Yeah, yeah, he he introduced us to take the truth. He, he introduced us to, um, that was one of the first times we we had recorded with a, a, um, a sequencer. Um, the drum, you know, that was one of the first times um, um, Woody Cunningham didn't play the drums. It was dr- we used a drum machine. And uh, I was kind of against it, but it was kind of this, the way the sounds were going. And uh, so we went through that. And... Um, I had I had my misgivings with that because of course I, I always wanted it to be live drums but but then again I found myself really programming a lot of the drum beats and all because I wanted it to sound like Woody was playing you know and uh, and uh, it 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 worked because we learned a lot of techno stuff from from uh, Dio you know you know he really did he brought us into the techno techno world because we were still trying to do the old uh, um, 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 analog stuff that we were doing when really the world was becoming digital at that time. So there was a change. 
and that record uh, definitely some different things from what you guys had done like right it was a real fast techno pop funk thing with some rock guitar was that guitar you on that one yes yes right it was me well, definitely some of the most prominent uh lead guitar you had, had done and uh the title track though i thought was a nice kind of slinky hypnotic groove um for some reason reminded me a little bit of like a michael henderson kind of thing um but um I know Steodato also uh, actually participated in some of the music making on that record too. Yeah, you know he uh, he didn't ask to get to get stuff. You know, that's one thing. You know, uh, there were times where we we would try to get Dio to play, and uh, but in he you know you know he really didn't do that much. A, a lot of that a lot of that keyboard work was done by the bass player Norman Durham too, because Norman Durham kind of made up little parts, and. Uh, and Dio kind of helped us put it all together, so it really sounded like you know, you know, you normally played the whole thing. And uh, like I said, he he taught us a lot about uh, you know, you you know, you know, you know, just the changing electronics and stuff because the sound was changing at that point. It was going more digital, and uh, and basically, you know, you know, you know, we had to learn a lot of that. Yeah, speaking, of, I mean, you have one track on there tonight, which was all vocoder. Uh, vocals. I was wondering if that had some zap influence, or you know where that came from. Ah, uh, you know it. That started out as just a, a little playful song, and um, you know, cause I, cause I would, I know, I remember like I would just sit and maybe program like a couple of beats on, on, um, on the drum machine that we had there at the time. And me and Norman would just go in there and play stuff. And one time, you know, you know, you know, he was just joking. He was just joking. He was just talking about tonight, you know, promising a girl a good time. And uh, and that's how it really came about. At first, we really weren't going to use it. Cunningham really didn't want to use it because he thought it didn't have the clear sound. But we were like, hey, man, look, it's funk. Just throw it on there and see what, you know, people think about it. And I thought it came out very well. It was, it was you know, you know, you know, because I I, I didn't like to get too serious about songs, and those songs sometimes were really, really nice and playful, and uh, and that's what tonight really turned out to be. Were Were you guys still touring much at that point, or was it more studio work? Let me see that. We did we did a lot of studio work, but we would go out because we went over to England like a couple of times and found out that Clear's real audience was over there. We it was. I don't know. Over, over in, you know, over in England, we felt like Earth, Wind, and Fire, because we would have, you know, you know, you sit there and you and, and you got five thousand people singing every word on your song. That was like, ooh. I mean, it it was it was a new thing to us. So now too that, you know, some of the real money came in in doing shows and stuff. So it was a lot of shows. You you. You know, when we went over to Europe, we we found out that because uh, we didn't know how good things were selling over there, they were selling well here. But they, but but like I said, over in Europe, we were like Earth, Wind, and Fire. They loved us, and uh, and that was kind of like a new experience to be over there because uh, we felt more appreciated there than we did in our own country. Sometimes, you know, because we would, you know, to walk along the street in in London, we would get recognized. Nobody recognized you in New York, you know. So it was, it was, 
it was a learning experience there, you know, too. So, yeah, it was more, I think we did more shows during that time, you know, because we went over to England twice. Did you guys end up going out with any of sort of the next wave of like R&B funk acts at that time, like the Atlantic Stars, Midnight Stars, Zaps, uh, people like that? But we really didn't tour a lot with uh, a lot of other people. They would, they would, you know, over and over in England. I mean, basically, they would call us over, and we would come over and do the clear show. And uh, and uh, we had a couple of big venues to where we did uh, Middlesex. We did we did all of England. I mean, I mean, every little part. And every time we came back, you know, you know, there was always more and more work. You know, I was almost ready to move to England for a little while. And uh, because I thought that that's where the future of uh, Clear was, you know, you know, you know, after things had really kind of broke up, there was a lot of things happening and a lot of recording opportunity, you know. But I got married and didn't quite go. <laughs> how, how would you say that the uh, live show uh, was different from when Eric was still in the band at that point? Well, I'm going to tell you a lot of it because we were. Okay, from time to time, we were playing with musicians sometime that we didn't know. So we, so we had to really structure things up. And uh, only sometimes, like on the clear ting and all, did we actually stretch out and play. You know, but um, let's just say it, it, started to be, it started to be a little bit more regimented because, like, like I said, we didn't have, the, you know, we didn't have Eric Robot, We didn't have Terry Dolphin. And we had also changed our background singers. So like, you know, like the four guys really just had to keep it really, really structured because usually we had somebody else that we had to teach the stuff to. Mm. So you ended up only doing one more record uh, with Atlantic, and it was the only label that you guys ever had, um, Secret in 1985, spelled, of course, with three E's. Uh, it's kind of fun. It's a funky spelling all around. Uh, S triple E K R E T. Um, this record was definitely a um, mellower R and B, even with sort of some pop influence. Um, what what was happening there? You guys were just sort of grappling to find out what might stick. You know, during that point, if you if you notice, most of the bands basically just fell apart at some point, and uh, and that. And that to me was like something we were trying to avoid, but uh, we were just reaching around and trying to see what was what. And at that point, of course, too, you know, that's when we were arguing with the record company a lot. See, so let's just say you have something that doesn't sell very well along with arguing with the record company. Those two things don't go together because, uh, you know, you know, at some point, the record company always has the last word. So, uh, yep. Yeah, that turned out to be our last album with them. And uh, which was eh, not a good decision. Well, you know, um, You Got Me Rockin' was another throwback to Keep Your Body Working on that mm -hmm. one. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know why Secret, the title song, again, I get, I mean, it's rhetorical. Obviously, there were label issues. But that should have been a single, I think. That was sort of a slick, bouncy, yeah. catchy, funky R&B track. Atlantic had a lot of new people coming in at that point. And it's like they just didn't know what to do with Clear. You know, and, uh, you know, you know, you know, 
you know, and we would we would be fussing about it. And of course, you know, you know, Atlantic's not going to say, "Oh yeah, you're right." Uh, well, you know, the, uh, the you know, the advertising department kind of blew it, kind of dropped the ball. You know, you know, they would never say it when it would when it would be very very obvious that it's like, "Wow, guys, uh, you guys are really not really coming on," because uh, you know, you know, they would. It was just songs that we just felt as though that if you know you know you know they really went behind, and then if it was something that they didn't want to push, they they really didn't push it very well, you know, you know you know and um, there's a few people with Atlantic you know you know from Atlantic that that have that story with them, you know their advertising department sometimes they were on sometimes they dropped the ball. Did you guys do uh, many TV appearances uh, during the run of Clear? And also, did you do uh, music videos? No music videos. It was it was just before the record company was, let's just say, uh, you had to be making money at a certain level for them to want to spend the money. We did play uh, Soul Train. <laughs> we were on Soul Train, if you remember. Yeah, yeah. No. I mean, I mean, I'm, I mean, we have done. Other things, but like uh, Atlantic Records really wasn't behind that. Other people would uh, get would get behind and try to do like a little video or something with us, but Atlantic really wasn't behind any real us us doing a video. You know, because shoot, I, so, I had thought of a whole scenario for for winners. You know, but go ahead. Mm -hmm. So back to Soul Train. What year was that? Do you remember? Oh, well, wow. That's, that's that was like the <laughs> one of the first albums, so it had to be 79, yeah, 70, yeah, 78, yeah. 79, so, 80, 79, somewhere right in there. 80. Yeah, we're yeah, on Soul right Train. Mm -hmm. yeah. Did yeah, you do any other TV shows besides that? Do you remember? That was, that was about it. That was I think that it. was it. Was there something we did uh, with the Universal Robot Band prior to Clear down in DC or something? Um, oh, oh, wow, yeah. Yeah, I'm, yes, I'm, 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 I'm grabbing at you now. You got, get those this is on you now. <laughs> mm -hmm. I was just filling yeah. in for Jerome on that thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was, I was trying to get those two memories mixed up, but no, no, no. I think, see, I, I, don't, I don't really, really. That's something that, cause see, cause see, with clear, see, we never actually had a manager. We never actually had management. Mm. We had a producer and a record deal, and that was it. And. Um, I think money-wise, maybe not having a manager was a smart thing. But then again, sometimes not having a manager, you know, to uh, let's just say help situations go on, you know, you know, you you know, behind the scenes and all. Yeah, we make things happen. Do everything. Yeah. Uh, see, so I think not having a manager hurt us and helped us at the same time. Agreed. You know, it's like pick your poison almost. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs>